we've been exploring Advent themes, hope, peace, joy, and love. And when you think about Advent, it means to look forward, anticipation of Christ. Christ is our true north. So Advent's really a time of recalibrating our compasses. It's, it's a time of keeping the main thing the main thing. And when you begin reading the story in Matthew, here's how it begins. This is how the birth of Jesus came about. And it goes on to describe a young, probably 14, 15-year-old girl named Mary who's pregnant. The Holy Spirit gets the credit. She's engaged to Joseph, who is described as a righteous man. There's not a whole lot said about Joseph except that he's a righteous man. And today it seems like we're more concerned with talking about righteousness rather than being righteous. It's another whole sermon. But she has to tell her parents and she has to tell Joseph. And Joseph being a righteous man in his religious culture, if he was going to be righteous, only had two choices, according to the church. One is have her stoned. The two, second is quietly dissolve the relationship. But in the midst of trying to figure that out, he has an angel experience, and the angel really says to Joseph, I want your righteousness to exceed any religious standard that you live with today. And so Joseph had the righteousness, the faith, to submit to a lifetime of judgment from his friends, family, and religious community. Now we know this because when Jesus was all grown up and he's doing his thing, and he gets into one of those discussions, you know, those heated arguments with the religious leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees. One day they were going back and forth and it was building and it was crescendoing. And finally they looked at him in John chapter 8 and said this. Well, Jesus, we were not born of sexual immorality. So see, the rumor had been that no, the Holy Spirit doesn't get the credit. And they had labeled Mary, they had labeled Joseph, the family had sought this and fought this. But you know how rumors go. But he was righteous and he did the right thing. But according to the religious righteous community, he did the unrighteous thing. Do you see the paradox there? Now, if you're witness to all this and you're watching how people are talking about, how people are saying things, and this whole conversation going on, if you were witness to all this in first person, what would you call loving and what would you call not loving? Now, I was thinking this week where I should take this topic. I know where some of you would like me to take it, and I'm not going to go there. Some of you would like me to solve the dilemma about, okay, this is loving and this isn't loving. You want me to read the situations in the news like the bakers who refused to bake a wedding cake for a same-sex couple and say, was that loving or not? We're not going to go there. I think in our arrogance, we want common response. In our arrogance, we judge those different than us and usually call them unloving if they disagree with us. So for those that want me to do that this morning, you will be gravely disappointed. (laughs) But I will say this. 
When I think about the whole story and unpack a lot of implications to this story, I do not know if I would have had the trust that Joseph had. Knowing that most people would judge me and my wife and my family harshly. Knowing that growing up, it'd be difficult to find work. And if I had my own business, some people wouldn't buy and sell from me. It'd even be more difficult when some of my friends and other families lost a son due to this whole Jesus being born. I think I would have felt some responsibility for that. And of course, there's those that would have blamed Joseph and Mary. But the disadvantage we have in the short recording that we read every Christmas, the disadvantage is that we don't get all the details, do we? And so often we don't get all the details, we tend to sanitize it. But here's what I want to do this morning. I want to read a passage of scripture from Romans chapter 5. And I want us to focus in on five, verse 5b. I want to make five statements. And then I want to tell a story of an encounter that Jesus had with a righteous man. And at least what culture defined as an unrighteous person. But I want to be clear about where I'm going this morning. It's my desire, and it's the desire of our church here, that whoever you are and whatever you bring and whatever your past and whatever your present, whatever your future is, our desire is that you experience God's love in your heart this morning. That's our desire. That's where we're going to go. So turn with me to Romans chapter 5. If you didn't bring God's word, it'll be on the screen, but you can read it with me. And again, you'll see the emphasis in verse 5 that we're going to look at. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice, and you note the themes of Advent coming through here, of hope and joy. We have joy in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And this hope does not put us to shame. And here's the phrase I want to focus in on this morning in verse 5. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. If we get a, oh, there's the next slide. It's in yellow. Read that with me again, okay? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love has been poured into our hearts. The first point I want to make this morning is that there's a difference between knowing and experiencing. Paul's talking about God's love being poured into our hearts, into our lives, into our experience. And that's not the same as God's love proven in our minds. 
God's love in our minds is a conclusion to an argument. You might say something like this. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God loves the world. I'm part of the world. Therefore, God loves me. Knowing is about information. Experiencing is about the application. And in our culture, we have a disconnect from knowing and living. Now, part of that's natural. I remember going to high school, and there were some days I thought life was pretty tough. And I still remember some adults saying something like this. Wait until you get out into the real world. (laughs) Ever say that to somebody? (laughs) Now, that wasn't said to put me down, although I felt like they were putting me down. I thought they were minimizing my experience. Nor did it suggest I wasn't alive and experiencing life. All they were saying was this, that there's more to life than my world in high school. Now, until I got out of high school and I started experiencing that world, until I got out of college and started experiencing that world, then I discovered that they were very true in that statement. It's one thing to read about poverty and another thing to go and live among those who are destitute. I'm going to put up three pictures. Here's the first. That's where my group of people I took over to Africa stayed one night. Now, I can show you this picture. You can look at that and say, wow, people still live like that? Yes, they do. And there's no plumbing in that place, by the way. There's no walls. There's no kitchen. It's just a mud hut with a thatch roof. Now, I experienced that for one night. So my knowing and experiencing is very different than the person who gave this up. The only thing we know is they slept out in the bush that night. They gave this place up for us to have a roof over our heads. But I can show you that picture. But knowing and seeing that's very different than being there. Here's the second picture. Yes, that's a road. You think highways in Pennsylvania are bad? This is going into Galucha. Now you notice it isn't built for what? Vehicles. In fact, they had to kind of hack some of the brush away from that. And we were going to a place, and it's hard to imagine this, but in 2007, that's when I was there, this tribe had never seen a white person. Now, seeing this, and you can say, wow, that's pretty rough. And driving back through that road to a place we had nowhere going is very different if you're there. Here's the third picture. This is where we ended up. This is Galucha. This is their church. Looks a little different than the church you're sitting in right now, doesn't it? And I got to tell you, see the pews? There's little rails. Their church service lasted for about three to four hours. And those were tough for white Americans to sit on. Now, they were accustomed, and you might say, well, why, why was it so long? Why did they take three hours for service? Well, the villages around there, they took five, six hours to walk there or to come in a donkey and a cart. And when they came, they just didn't want to go 30 minutes to 60 minutes. They wanted to be there all day with each other. So you stood up, and you preached, and you sang, and you preached some more, and you sang some more, and you preached some more. It's like a three-part sermon, only you had to make sure you had at least 45 minutes in each segment. Now, again, seeing this, you can say, wow, you know, I know that exists. But being there is a very different experience. And even though I was there for two days, 
Living there would be an experience beyond what I experienced. So let's talk about experiences in our text. Did you notice going down through the scripture, here's what it said. Paul says, and he quantifies and he combines joy and suffering. That's something we do not do experientially in our culture. But here's what he says. We rejoice, we have joy in our sufferings. Knowing the mind, and it's coming down to the experience now, knowing that suffering produces endurance, Endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Now, Paul doesn't qualify or quantify suffering here. It could be corrective suffering due to sin. It could be suffering at the hands of another. We, read, we all read stories of the Holocaust and how horrible that was in terms of uh, concentration camps. It could be the suffering that exists today. I was reading this past week what's been happening in some of the countries in the Middle East with the Coptic Christians in Egypt. They're under heavy persecution. Their churches are being burned down. They're being slaughtered. And while they're, this whole part of the refugee crisis, what I discovered this past week, according to one of their leaders, is that in America, out of all the refugees we took in from Syria, for some reason, the Coptic Christians, there's only been 57 that have made it into our country. And yet at the same time, these people are going and they're ministering out of their suffering to people. And there are thousands upon thousands of people accepting Christ as their personal savior. It could be suffering due to catastrophic events like the fires in the Smoky Mountains. Started by some teenagers and people have lost everything. But Paul combines this suffering with joy And he talks about endurance and character. And I think one of the main reasons why there's a lack of character in America today is because we don't handle suffering very well, do we? We're too entitled. We're too self-absorbed. And there's shift today. And they talk about all these shifts of how we think. The shift today, they say, is that we use our idol called money to first buy our desires, And then what happens is a lot of people do not have any money for necessities. Now, practical application of this is that people were willing to pay for cell phones and internet plans with money they need for foods. And our kids pay the price. And so they grow up living this way. And now the new term in our colleges, and I don't know if you heard this, is students are experiencing food insecurity. What that means is they're afraid they don't have enough food. Now, this article about food insecurity, the next article talked about all the waste of food on college campuses. And the claim is that around 22 million pounds of food gets thrown away from universities every year. And I'm saying to myself, I don't get the contrast. Now, they got money for spring break, by the way, and they got money for their parties and they got money for their cell phones. They just don't have money for food. And Paul says all this produces what? Hope. And that this hope does not put us to shame. Now, what what this means is that we are not defined by our sin. That's what shame is. Sin shames us. It condemns us. It enslaves us. And other people may define us by our sin. And other people may try to shame us, but not Christ. We who have embraced Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are defined by Christ. And we live according to the grace of God. 
And that leads me to my second point this morning. In this text, we find out the experience of God's love is poured out through the Holy Spirit. What this means is, decisively, it is not human effort. You cannot cause God's love to be poured out into your life. You cannot be good enough for it. You cannot do enough serving for it. It is supernatural. You don't make it happen. You can't make it happen. And instinctively, we know this. I was at a seminar in Canada. It's an SRA seminar, Satanic Ritual Abuse. It was being taught by a college. It was a secular environment. And I remember what the instructor said very clearly. She got up and said this. She's now, we are going to teach you some techniques on how to help people cope with what we know has been done to them. But I'm here to tell you that their lives are hopeless. They can never get through it. They can never get rid of the shame. They can never get rid of the damage. Now, the beauty of Christianity is that we're not defined by our past like this secular instructor was very clear about. And yet she was accurate because there is no human effort that can untangle the amount of sin in any one of our lives. Only Christ can do that. So in humility, we accept the love of Christ and we allow his love to be poured into us by his spirit. That's why Advent is so important. That's why looking forward is so important. That's why keeping the main thing, the main thing is so important. It's because of Christ's supernatural work in us. He pours God's love into our lives. But as long as we want to be defined defined by our sin, that can't happen. Third statement. The experience of God's love has factual, objective content. Now, when I began talking about knowing and experiencing are different, I wasn't putting down knowing. Knowing is important. And when we think about God's love, we celebrate Christmas and we know about the birth of Christ. That is a factual, objective experience that we study and we know. We can't be there. We were not there. And yet we celebrate it. Easter, his death and resurrection is a factual objective piece of information. And he tells us this in this passage. God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so we have stories. We have stories of transformation, don't we? And when you look around and you look at the people next to you, they have stories. A lot of times we don't share the stories because Sometimes we're defined by our past and we're full of shame and we don't want people to know how God transformed us. But that's not how we live because the psalmist says what? As far as the east is from the west, Christ declares, I will remember your sins what? No more. How far is the east from the west? Well, if you go east, you keep going east for how long? You never stop because we're on a globe. We're in a circle. We're not flat like we used to believe and fall off the end of the earth somewhere. But the experience of God's love has factual, objective content. We know about Christmas, the birth. We know about his death, the resurrection. We know about stories. And it's why sharing our stories are so important. People need to have the hope through their suffering that there is a way out. 
Fourth statement. God's love is experienced by all Christians in some measure. Now, what I mean by that is that his love, at least on an emotional, experiential level, varies from time to time. There are seasons. There are seasons when you sense and feel his deep, deep love, and it's incredible, and you wish you could stay there. And there's other times that he feels so far away. There's times we're so busy that we don't intentionally set him aside, but we do that unintentionally. There's times we move from crisis to crisis. There's times life is going so good we just kind of forget. And yet the psalmist writes these words, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. And your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And it varies from person to person. Now, we don't like this, but there's times when this... Love gets poured into a person, not us, and they sense his love, and we do not. And I don't know about you, but I get kind of jealous. And I say, why not me? Why them? And sometimes, inappropriately, we start questioning whether or not they really are experiencing God's love. I remember a time, a story of a person who had a rather sordid past in the community and everybody knew that and everybody knew his history came to church he accepted Christ he was baptized and I saw a person in church looking on they were like this now could you tell they weren't too happy (laughs) and so I did a foolish thing I approached them and I said you know what's wrong and they go well we're not sure about their conversion whether it was real or not. And, and I asked them for further, further detail. And I'm not going to tell you what they said because they were looking for outward signs that were just absolutely ridiculous. You don't find them anywhere in scripture, but in their mind, somehow, if they really accepted Christ, this is what they would be wearing and doing. And then they made this statement. Well, I'll give them six months and we'll see. They couldn't handle God's love being poured out into someone like this person who had this kind of past. And what we have to remember is that we are not the standard. And our opinion is not the standard. But Christ is the standard. Amen? Last statement. God's love can be and should be pursued in a deeper and fuller experience. We call that growing in the grace of our Lord and Savior. And when we pursue God's love, there's a cause and effect. The cause and effect is that we're light and salt. The the cause and effect is we're a positive influence on people. The cause and effect is we're good stewards. We're generous. We make wise decisions. But there's a very, very bad habit that we Christians have gotten into. You know what it is? It's called expecting perfection. Now, it's our version of perfection. And we want it from everybody else and not ourselves. But that's another whole story. And we repeatedly say things like this. Oh, we are all sinners. I'm a sinner. I'm saved by grace. And have you ever noticed that most people don't get into specifics? I'm always tempted when someone says that. Okay, what sin are you talking about? And when someone else sins, 
oh, they get put on the naughty list. And they all know who's been good and who's been bad. Oh, that's Santa Claus, isn't it? But we do that, don't we? And here's what I hear people say then. Oh, I can't believe so-and-so did that. They're, They're such a bad witness for Christ. They make us look bad. As if we don't already look bad in the eyes of the people outside the church. I mean, it was up to us to reflect Christ. We do it so imperfectly. And what breaks my heart in this whole context of this judgment is, and I hear it so often, over my 38 years, I can't tell you how many times I've heard this. People visit and they say something like this. Oh, pastor, I would love to come, but I don't want to get you in trouble. You see, the people here know me. And what they mean is, the people here know what they did. And it could be five years, it could be 10 years. I remember one situation when I asked the person what they do, they go, well, you know, 35 years ago. I'm like, wow. And it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart that some people live in fear and judgment of religious people. And I know there's always going to be people who think they're Jesus moral police person and they got this whole love thing and this joy thing and this peace thing and this hope thing down and everybody else has to live according to their standard. But that is just a position of arrogance that we need to repent from. That's a sin of pride, people. Now what we are to model is a path of redemption. That is part of the Christmas story. Why did Jesus come? To save people from their sin. And since we are disciples of Christ, and since we are called Christians, we model a path of redemption. And this is the love we celebrate. And this is the love that's shed abroad in our hearts. But far too often we model a path of Pharisaism. How could they? I never would. And I think our harshness comes from a fear inside of us at our own vulnerability. And we don't want people to see that. And it's easier to judge and get offended and create categories and keep filling our information boxes rather than having God's love poured out into our hearts. Because when his love's poured out into our hearts, we do incredible things like we forgive and we're gracious and we restore But if we keep filling our information boxes and we know all the truth about Jesus and we can quote all the verses and we can be a good Christian and sing all the right hymns and the right songs and have the right stories. But experientially, we close our hearts to the Holy Spirit pouring God's love into our lives. We become little mini messiahs. And that's where we need to repent. There's a story in the Gospels. And when you read the Gospels together, the story is kind of pieced. And we find out Jesus just finished preaching to a crowd. He gave this invitation, come to me and I will give you rest. And he gets an invite into Simon's house. Simon was a Pharisee. And they're sitting there, they're having a conversation. And their houses are quite different than ours. There's not doors and stuff. Yes, there are some doors. But a lot of times they're out in this outdoor patio. And they're sitting there having this conversation. In walks a woman with a reputation. All we know, we don't know her name. We don't know her age. We just know in scripture is that she was called a sinner. 
by the righteous people. She is one of those people. She walks in, doesn't say a word, quietly kneels at the feet of Jesus, and she's crying. And she uses her tears to wash his dirty feet. And she dries his feet using her hair as a towel. And then she anoints his feet with perfume. And while she is doing this, and you can imagine it's somewhat awkward because here's Simon, his house, this woman, Jesus is here. He doesn't quite know what to do, so he does what we do. Rather than say anything, we just think to ourselves. And so Simon's thinking to himself, you know, this Jesus guy, don't know. If he was a prophet, as he claims he is, he would have known who this woman was and what type of woman she was, and he would not have let her touch him. He sat in silent judgment of her why. Now, what he failed to realize was that Jesus was the son of God and he could read people's minds. And Simon being offended that this woman had the gall to come into his residence and Simon being offended that Jesus allowed her to enter and to wash and anoint his feet. And he was disgusted that she was doing this. And as she was doing this and as he was thinking this, Jesus looks at Simon and says, "Um, I want to tell you a story and I want to ask you a question. Now remember, he tells the story. She's down here and she's doing the wash anointing thing. Two people. One owed 50 denarii, the other owed 100 denarii. Both could not pay their debt. And the person they owed their debt to said, you know what? Now he didn't say Merry Christmas. I'm throwing that in there because they didn't have Merry Christmas yet. But he says, I'm going to forgive your debt. Go on your way. You don't owe me a cent. And Jesus, knowing Simon's heart, that he was tied into money and greed and he wasn't a generous person, said, who do you think was more grateful and loving? Simon says, well, obvious. The one who owes the most. So he keeps the conversation going with Simon. But instead of looking at Simon, he turns and he looks at the woman at his feet. But he keeps talking to Simon. Here's what he says. Looking into your eyes, he goes, Simon, when I entered your house, you provided no water for my feet to be washed. And she washed them with her tears. You gave me no kiss of greeting. She has not stopped kissing my feet. You gave me no oil to anoint my head. And she's anointed my feet. Still looking at the woman, talking to Simon, He says this, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And then he addresses her in the conversation. Looking at her eyes, he says, your sins are forgiven. Now, the point of the story is not that she was a greater sinner. Point of the story was perspective on how we view ourselves. Simon was blind to his own sin, his sin of pride, his sin of standing in judgment, his sin of listening to the gossip spreading around the community about this woman. Doesn't matter whether it was true or not. That's not the point of gossip. 
It was destructive. It was harmful. It was not restorative. And Jesus is saying this. To the degree you understand your own sin will be the degree that you're able to receive my love being poured out by the Holy Spirit into your life. So Jesus really is saying you want to love? You have desire for my love to be poured into your heart? And I want to close with two questions that are relevant to this. The first is, Who do you need to forgive? See, unforgiveness brings death to our souls. Simon was unwilling to forgive this woman. He just wanted to judge her. See, it's impossible for us to love on a divine level and hold unforgiveness in our hearts. So for those of us who are in the family of God, part of the kingdom, if you want this love to pour, to flow in a generous form in your life, if you don't want to block the Holy Spirit from giving you God's love, you got to ask, who do I need to forgive? Second question is somewhat like it. Who needs to be forgiven? Now again, in the family, there's sin. Some this morning need to accept Christ. You've never been part of the family. And so your past and your present that you've been hanging on to and defining yourself by, you need to let God's love pour into your life and to forgive you. We often talk about being born again or at the point of salvation. That's what that is. But as Christians too, there are some of you who need to be forgiven because you've been hanging on to sin. You've been hanging on to an addiction that nobody knows about and you just kind of cover it up rather than deal with it in terms of the body of Christ. So, for those who have never accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior, I want to give you an opportunity to do that this morning. And our tradition here is that you just simply stand up and we're going to partner you with someone that will take you out and they will help you understand what decision you're going to make. So is there someone here this morning that would like to make that choice to be forgiven from their sin, to allow Christ into their life, to accept this baby Jesus as their Lord and Savior? Just stand to your feet. And if I don't see you, kind of wave at me. Okay, there's one. Someone else? There's another. Anyone else? Okay, I see Greg. Oh, there's, okay, there's number three. Anyone else? Okay, Greg, can you make sure that men on men, women on women, take them out and we'll work there? But why don't we just give a praise gift to God for those three? Now, the second thing, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up because we're going to close with a song we're familiar with, Go Tell on the Mountain. That's what we do with God's love. This second thing might be a little tougher for people. If you're here this morning and you need to forgive somebody or you need to be forgiven, I just want you to stand to your feet and we're going to have prayer for you. Anyone? Okay. People standing up all over. Now, it's Christmas. I like to give things away. (laughs) And um, 
Is there someone that really on a daily basis needs to find a rhythm in their life of what it means to allow God to call them to himself? Uh, is there someone who would like a devotional for that? It's called Jesus Calling. Okay, I see that hand. Just come down here afterwards, okay, and I'll give it to you. I'm not going to try to toss it up there. I might hit somebody. Let's all stand. I want to pray with you. Father God, we are way too familiar that we need your love poured into our lives. Man, we try it on our own. We mess it up. Pray for these people that had the courage to stand. That whatever the situation, the circumstance is, uh, you do what you do so well. You give us the ability to do things that we cannot do on a human level. Whether they need to be forgiven of sin or whether they need to forgive somebody. I pray that your spirit just minister to them right now to allow that to happen. I pray for the others that are making a decision for you this morning. Um, May you just bless them today. Bring clarity to their mind, but also their experience. And may we as a community of believers surround them and encourage them and walk with them. Because all of us know how Satan likes just to throw walls up and pits that we fall into. We thank you, Lord, for this Christmas season. It's about a week away from when we celebrate your birth. It means so much to us. May we free our lives from idols this week. May we keep you straight in our face, in our vision, in our minds, in our hearts. And may we allow you to pour your love into our, li- into our hearts as, as your word has taught us that this morning. But thank you, Lord, that uh, you are here with us. Thank you that we can worship you in spirit and truth. Thank you, Lord, for your birth. And we pray these things in your most precious name. And everyone said, amen.